I want to encourage folks to sign in in the back just so that we have a record of, uh, and if your name is, if you're not getting the weekly emails, make sure that you put your uh, your name and uh, email on that so that we can, we can, and I'll try not to spam you, I'm just sending out about one, uh, <coughs> one uh, email a week just to kind of recap some things and then to point folks to the video and other things we're doing in here, so yeah. And if you have friends that are, uh, that, that don't have a place or are looking for a place to kind of belong, what we're trying to do at the crossing really is just that, is to create a context of belonging in a spiritual, uh, in a spiritual place. And to do that in a way that the bar, sometimes they belong at a spiritual community, the bar is so high that when you feel like you miss one time or something goes on in your life, that uh, you, it's easier to fade away. And so what I'll always say is, number one, this is not a hostage crisis. You're not, this is, uh, this is not, and one of those, I was in a small group in college where I said, yeah, I almost had to fake your death to get out of it, you know? And this is not that. We understand that people's lives are busy, we got kids, thousand things are going on. But what we want to do is make sure that there's a place that you can come back to, a place that you can belong in and come back to when you need to. There's some of us that this is our, um, myself included, a place that is becoming increasingly more important and the relationships in this place are becoming more important. And so um, come as you can and know that you belong. So, um, we're going to look at the, the, a text that we began last week to look at uh, under the guise of how we change. Because part of what I'm, I'm interested in and been interested in over the last few years is what does it mean to involve ourselves in a maturing spirituality? A spirituality where we're maturing, <clears throat> where we're growing, we're growing deeper, we're growing broader, um, whatever it looks like to grow. Come on in, y'all. Um, and one of the things that I have realized is that often we are given uh, a faith as children in confirmation. And we're handed a faith, and we're told these are the things to believe. And really, our belief system is synonymous with, with our faith system. And so what we believe and, and faith is synonymous. And then life happens. We grow things. We experience uh, uh, trauma or pain or something that doesn't fit, right? We, we begin to, to have these kind of things that don't fit. And um, often what I began to kind of describe that our, our faith is often like a t-shirt we're handed. And we often grow out of that t-shirt somewhere along the way. And we find ourselves shoving ourselves into that t-shirt uh, maybe once a week when we show up here. And everybody is kind of shoved into an eight-year-old t-shirt. And we're all kind of trying to act like we've got it all together. And we're, it's fine. And it's not uncomfortable. And so we're going to say things and we're going to sing things that we think, do I believe that? And so there's not a lot of time, space for doubt or growth. Because doubt, uh, what Frederick Buechner says, is doubt is the ants and the pants of faith. <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of bites you in the butt. You kind of, whoa, what's going on here? Right? It kind of keeps you moving. And so often what we've done in modernity is to say that certainty and assurance is what faith is. If you can say the Apostles' Creed and you can say, yeah, that's it. That's what faith is. Well, we come to the New Testament and we see that that's not exactly what faith is. Faith causes us to risk deeper into places that causes a deep uncomfortability within us. 
It's not the kind of faith that says, you know, hold my beer, Jesus, watch this. With, and you're assured that it's just all going to work out. What Kierkegaard says in, um, um, in his philosophy is that faith will lead us always to the edge of a precipice. And you will hear a voice behind you say, take a step. Take a step in this relationship. Take a step in this business. Take a step in your spiritual life. Take a step. Take a step. And if always that which brings us to a place of risk. And so often in modernity, in, in our culture, we have conceptualized because of that faith as assurance and faith um, as, as this kind of overconfidence. We really don't need Jesus anymore. And so we only risk the things we know that are going to work out. We only befriend people and we only show up at things that we know that we're going to have a, um, a, a sense of, of either pleasure in or success in. And that often there's a chasm that grows in our own lives that is larger and larger and we try to shellack a bunch of Jesus over the top of that chasm and we try to call that faith. And that works until it doesn't work. Works until we come to a place where that gap, the gap between what we have believed as, a ch as children and the experiences that we have as adults, that gap gets wider. And we either lose faith or we say the words of faith or we live with that gap inside of us that none of us actually know what to do with sometimes. And what we're attempting to do in this um, class and in this community is really one, I think, to acknowledge that gap. Acknowledge that, that we're going to grow. Acknowledge that the eight-year-old t-shirt that you were given at confirmation should not fit you in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. It should not fit you. And if it does, um, you, you hadn't grown. That makes sense? Oh, Christian Wyman says this as poet that um, he wrote a book called My Bright Abyss which is a great book. It's prose. It's not poetry. His prose, I think, is better than his poetry. He, he says, if what you believe at 15 is the same thing you believe at 50, you haven't grown. When I read that, I was like, oh, right? Because when I was a kid, I was kind of handed this faith, and, and all of the Apostles' Creed, I was just polishing it up, thinking that was faith. Until I got to a place in my own life where my kind of these secret addictions that I had, addiction that I had, <clears throat> was just eating my lunch. I didn't want to share that with anybody. I wanted God to zap me. I, I, I kind of had invested in a type of spirituality that if I was good enough and I pointed towards God enough, that God would zap me and take it out of me. And I got to a place where that was not working, and I had to take a step of faith and enter into a process in a community that I didn't want to enter into, that I wasn't assured it was going to work out. It left me deep, feeling deeply insecure, and it was the only place I could go if I wanted to live. That's faith. That's faith. Stepping into a place you don't know if the ground's going to hold you, but you can no longer live in the way that you've been living before. And that's faith. And most of my religious life, um, religion has taught me if I could do it enough, maybe I could bypass that. And we come to the life of Jesus. And Jesus, his very self, lives by faith. Lives in faith. Lives out of faith. And we'll see that even in the text that we're going to read today. And so the Gospels, um, the... the, the um, 
the circles of God's grace just keep getting bigger. And that's what, um, that's what surprises me about Jesus, is that I want Jesus to have a lot better, um, like, I don't know, boundaries, if that's the right word, or maybe uh, values. <laughs> I want him to have a. I, I kind of want to hold on to his reputation a little more. And every time I see Jesus, Jesus isn't caring about his reputation. He's just falling in love with other people and bringing them into a place of belonging and 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 change. Because at the end of the day, love is the only power that is powerful enough to change us. Not self-will, not shame, not guilt, not promising you're going to do it again, not again or do it again. None of that's powerful enough. The only power strong enough is to have a deep experience of love, mainly in the place you least expect it but most need it. And that begins to change us. And so we're going to look at a text where I think even Jesus um, 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 has an encounter with this woman. We started looking at it last week. There's an encounter with this woman um, that changes him that begins to alter the way he sees his own humanity and his own place in it. Um, and so we're going to look at that text uh, today. We read it last week. We read it out of the message. It's, uh, I love the way that the message uh, translates the, the New Testament. And so who has the first number one? You do. Let me give you, uh, we're going to pass this around too so that we can, we can hear everybody. I'm at this word. Oh, look at that. He then called the crowd together and said, Listen and take this to heart. It's not what you swallow that pollutes your life, but what you vomit up. Later, his disciples came and told him, Did you know how upset the Pharisees were when they heard what you said? Jesus shrugged it off. Every tree that wasn't planted by my Father in heaven will be pulled up by its roots. Forget them. They are blind men leading blind men. When a blind man leads a blind man, they both end up in the ditch. Peter said, I don't get it. Put it in plain language. Jesus replied, You too, are you being willfully stupid? Don't you know that anything that is swallowed works its way through the intestines and is finally defecated? But what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. It's from the heart that we vomit up evil arguments, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, lies, and cussing. That's what pollutes. Eating or not eating certain foods, washing or not washing your hands, that's neither here nor there. From there, Jesus took a trip to Tyre and Sidon. They had hardly arrived when a Canaanite woman came down from the hills and pleaded, Mercy. Master, son of David, my daughter is cruelly afflicted by an evil spirit. Jesus ignored her. The disciples came and complained. Now she's bothering us. Would you please take care of her? She's driving us crazy. Jesus refused, telling them, I've got my hands full dealing with the lost sheep of Israel. Then the woman came back to Jesus, dropped to her knees and begged, Master, help me. He said, it's not right to take bread out of children's mouths and throw it to dogs. She was quick. You're right, Master. 
but beggar dogs do get scraps from the master's table. Jesus gave in. Oh, woman, your faith is something else. What you want is what you get. Right then, her daughter became well. So, so we come the New Testament, and, and there's all these um, rules about what you touch, what you put in your body. Religion says that there are um, good people and bad people. And if you hang out with the bad people, you're going to get bad stuff on you. That's basically the Marta Joe Russell version of the gospel, right? That's my, every mother says, be careful who you hang out with, right? Uh, the, the proverb says that, uh, that bad company corrupts good morals. I memorized that by the time I was like four years old, right? Um, and so we know that, that be careful of, of what's out there because it could infect you and, and, um, and lead to something and becoming something that you want, don't want to be. I get it. That's totally true. But all of Israel was, was built around, and the religion of the Jews was built around then, these things that mark them off from other things and other people. And so Jerusalem was the center, and the farther you got away from Jerusalem, the more unclean things were. And so you had the Holy of Holies that sat in the middle of the whole operation of the Jews. And then you had the court of the, of the, of the men, and then the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. And beyond that, it just got dirtier and dirtier. So the center was, uh, um, of, of that religion is what you did, what you put on, how you prayed in public. So when Jesus comes along and says, um, when you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees pray. Go to your closet and pray. Right? He tells a parable about a dude that shows up and who's praying and there's this, this guy that, that shows up who's the sinner that's just like weeping in the corner just saying, like, woe is me. I've really screwed up. Help me. And the Pharisee says, I'm so glad I'm not like that dude. And Jesus said, who's closer to the heart of God? The person that's got the mask down really tight and is acting like he or she has got it all together, or the person that has come to the end of themselves and are just like, I'm messed up. I'm vulnerable. I'm open. I don't know what else to do besides to stand here and just beg for your mercy. Jesus says that it's in that place when we realize that um, we can't keep our life together in that way and we're broken open. That's where spirituality happens. That's where it happens. And so I'm going to run through just a quick kind of um, overview of what we talked about last week to catch us up to speed. The question that I was asking last week and we were exploring is how do we change? And usually it's through a process of being oriented. We, we know the right way and then we get disoriented. Wait a minute. The things that were working for me before is not working for me anymore. Um, often in addictive studies, um, they'll say that, that um, the, the volume of the addiction will increase, but the uh, pleasure won't anymore. You get disoriented, so I need, to, I need more of whatever I was putting in my body, right? Um, often, folks will get to a place within their own life and say, I thought if I had all of this money, if I went on these kinds of trips, if I was driving these kind of cars, I'd be okay. And you get there and you think, well, why does this hole still exist? There's a disorientation. And either we can stop and ask the question, why do I feel this way? 
Or we look around and say, nobody else is feeling this way. Let's keep moving, right? Darwin said, and I love this quote, that human beings are the only animals that when they're lost, increase their speed, <laughs> right? And so often we get disoriented and lost and we think, hmm, I don't like this feeling of being disoriented, so we notch it up. We, we do more. We increase our speed. Um, but often it's in the disorientation when we stop and ask, why do I feel this way? What's going on? That there's a new orientation that can come out of that. We also said that change often comes when we learn a new language. The language of spirituality is a new language. This is what Shad Maroon, a guy that studies change, when I was doing my PhD and I, I got to meet with him and study under him for a while, that he said really um, folks that are persisting in criminal activity, often what they need is a new language. And so the language of spirituality, I was blind, but now I can see. If any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. They're being able then to understand as they learn that language and understand their spoiled path, their spoiled past. Um, AA is like that. Therapy can be like that. We also said that then primarily change is when we're able to see differently. The present reality that we're living in, the life that we're living, we began to be disoriented enough to see differently. In the New Testament, this is called metanoia. Uh, it's translated really terribly as repent, um, which when I was growing up meant to feel really crappy about something you did and promise not to do it again, right? <laughs> They, you know, and so when every camp I ever went to, like, I, you know, Christian camp I ever went to, people ask me, you know, when did you become a Christian? Well, about 50 times at camp, right? Because it was just like, I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to burn in hell, and I just want to make sure it stuck, right? <laughs> and metanoia does not mean that. Thomas Kuhn, this guy that wrote, um, I think it's still the, 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 the most... Uh, 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 the most popular selling book on college campuses, wrote uh, a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. It's really small, and it's great. Um, I, I mean, it sounds really bad. Uh, and I think about the structure of science. I mean, it's a pop-up book. You know, No, it's not a pop-up book. Um, um, it's really great. In that, he coined the phrase paradigm shift. And he said that um, any time that there is a change, change rarely comes from the system that produces the problem, right? That because the system that produces the problem can only see certain things. And that a paradigm shift, change will always come from something you don't expect from the outside, right? And so if you are absolutely... Um, committed not to be disoriented, you don't have a good chance of changing, right? Because change will always come from the outside, always comes in a place you don't expect it, from, a, from an avenue that you didn't even realize maybe was there, from a relationship that comes out of the blue, from a call that you weren't expecting, from something that is happening in your life. That's where change often breaks open. And Thomas Kuhn says that's a paradigm shift. And the way that science changes, the way that culture changes, I think the way people change and have a metanoia to be able to see differently. We talked about perspective and that some of us can see a duck, some of us can see a rabbit in that picture, right? So a philosophy or perception 101 picture right there, right? Um, and that um, if, you're, if you can only see the duck, 
that when you see the rabbit, you go, holy crud, look at that. Or if you can only see the rabbit, you see the duck. Finally. You, you guys see the rabbit and the duck? Yeah, okay, all right, all right. If you can't, I'll, I'll show you later. <laughs> but I remember the first time I saw that, and it was like, whoa, right? When I showed my son that, I told that story last week, he was like, whoa, like it was some kind of magic. And I think this is metanoia. And some of us need a metanoia in our relationships with our spouse. Some of us need a metanoia in relationship with our boss, with, our, uh, with maybe folks across the table that we eat with. That we see, we lock in ways of seeing each other. And then we relate to each other based out of that. And often, we come to a place of either deep dissatisfaction and we kind of just run the clock out in our relationships thinking, you know, the Jack Nicholson, I guess this is as good as it gets. Or we're disoriented enough to say, what is this about? How do I see this person differently? And I also think part of the deep, deep work is to begin to see ourselves differently. Often we are so driven by voices of our past, of our fathers, of our mothers, of places of shame that drive us on, that what we uh, equate our value by is really what we make and what we own and how we achieve. And the very call of the gospel is to look at ourselves through the lens of this radical acceptance and love and to begin to marinate in that and live out of that differently. You will never mature unless you're able to have that kind of paradigm shift and be able to see each other and yourselves in the way that God sees us. And so we talked about that and then that really at its core Christianity then is a belonging system. It's not a believing system. I used to think that, that the Holy Spirit was kind of like that big bouncer at a club that you wanted to get into, and you had to say the right words, you know, except Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Okay, come on in. Enjoy the party, right? And if you didn't say the right words, well, you were cast out into hell. At its core, if Jesus loves, again, the world then love is everywhere. And what, what Jesus is asking folks to do, and he says this all the time in the New Testament, these parties that nobody shows up to, so he goes to the highways and byways and just says, come to this party, because it's in the experience of God's party of love that we change. Right? Most of the religion I grew up with told me, tell me what you believe, and I'll tell you if you belong. Well, 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 good try. Go study a little more, come back, and we'll see if you belong. When Jesus says, this table is for the table of the world. And once you taste the taste of love, and you'll realize that what you have been eating doesn't satisfy, you're going to want more of that. When Harry met Sally, I'll have what she's having, right? I mean, that, that's the taste of love. I want, I want an experience that's going to radically transform me. So the Holy Spirit isn't kind of this kind of bouncer that's like stacked and angry. The Holy Spirit is this like six-lane highway trying to get us all to an experience of love. And so because of that, we see what Jesus does often is go to the other side. He goes to the other side uh, in the Gospels all the time. In fact, the Gospel that we read today, Jesus is on the other side. 
And often when he goes to the other side, there's a storm that comes up. There's some kind of resistance. There's a disorientation when you're going to the other side. And the other side is where bad things happen, where um, unclean people are, where you're not in control, where things aren't safe, where things aren't credentialed, when you don't get to name what happens next. In fact, the uh, story, one of the stories right before this, when he went to the other side before this time, there was this demoniac that came out of the tombs who was chained and was just freaked out and freaking everybody out. So when you go to the other side, often things appear that you, you, you don't know how to control. So Jesus now has gone to the other side. And what I began to realize as I read the Scripture um, is that to be a follower of Jesus will mean that you will always be led to the other side. You'll be led to the other side of your own consciousness, the shadows, the things that you don't know how to put together, the places in you that you don't know how to share with anybody, or you don't know how to tell about the fear that you experience, or the anger that you have, or the shame that you've lived in. Like that part of the spiritual life is not just to kind of paint some Jesus over the top of that and get on like it's some kind of like, like cream that like will numb you up but that it brings those two things together so that you can be healed. And so the other side is not just the other side of culture. It's not just the other side of, um, of, of where unclean people are or folks that your parents told you not to hang out with. It's that. For sure Jesus goes there. But it's also the other side of our own consciousness, our, what Jung might call the shadows, the things that we struggle with the things that we don't know how to bring together. And I think maturity, following Jesus, will mean that you will always be led to the other side. And here's the thing that I've realized about Jesus. Jesus will do that relentlessly but tenderly. Like Jesus is not, his, his goal isn't to bring you up in front of everybody and let's put you on a platform and let's pant you in front of everybody and embarrass you. And Jesus says, see, now, now I've done my work. That, that's what I used to think spirituality was going to do, is if I really gave my life to Jesus and I began to kind of deal with these things that were at the bottom of my life, I was going to get embarrassed. And I think the very way of Jesus is to bring those things that we don't know how to deal with, what to deal with, and bring those together in a way that leads us to freedom. Now, humility will be a part of that. Um, but that's the way of Jesus. So we come to a text today where this woman sees something in Jesus, I think at the time, that Jesus might not have even seen about himself. That might be different for some ears in this place. I want to ask you a question. Um, has there been someone in your life who has believed things about you that you couldn't see? Has there been somebody in your life that saw something about you? that you could not see in yourself. You couldn't believe in yourself. Um, and they saw it, and they just wouldn't let it go, and it gave you life. It allowed you to see something you couldn't see. Does anybody want to share any of that? This is, uh, you don't have to, but if you want to. Something came up to the top. Take a risk and share that.
That's great. Who else? Who else? Somebody saw something in you that when they said it, it put air in your sails. Jacqueline. That's, that's good. We're, we don't camouflage our souls as much as we think we can, right? And, and, and that's, that's a really good thing. If you get camouflaged so much that people can't see you, um, then you're, not, um, you're never going to grow. And so whether it's a coach that sees something in you or a, a youth director that sees something in you that you can't, that really saves your life at a point, or a, um, uh, somebody in your family that... Um, notice is something that liberates you that you can't see. It's really important. I think there's soul friendships that are like that. Soul friends challenges the sins that we've come to live with. They challenge just the sins that we think, yeah, you know, I guess I'm going to live with this the rest of my life. And a friend might say, hey, t- tell me about that. <laughs> right? They affirm the gifts that we're afraid to claim. Friendships will do that. You have to develop friendships where other people will see things in you and say, and draw that out. Right? We talked about, and I, um, I used Joe uh, last week as a uh, dear example, and he's still on the front row. I can't believe that. You're a, <laughs> you're a brave man. <laughs> but we have to be able to see things in each other to draw those out. If our friendships are only based on competition and comparison, we will live in the ch- and we will be chained to the shallow end of life. If every time we go to pick up our kids, we're comparing our bodies to other people, our kids to other people, our Facebook trips to other people, we will always be chained in the shallow end of life. And the call of the gospel is really to enter into these kinds of soul friends where we can affirm the gifts that we're afraid um, to claim and then to dream the dreams we otherwise wouldn't. Part of what we're doing in the crossing is going to be doing these things, these three things. To see things in each other, call those things out. Um, go deep with each other in that space. So we come to this uh, text today, and the, the woman that confronts Jesus is like um, what uh, a Catholic theologian, John Shea, says, is kind of a triple loser um, in the Gospels, because she's a woman. She's a Gentile, right? You, you, we think about those, centri- those, those circles that are getting wider out from Jerusalem, and she's a woman, a Gentile, and a Syrophoenician, Right? 
All of these things say, uh, and when both Matthew and Mark describe her, she's described in these ways, and every good Jew would know, ooh, triple loser, right? It's a woman, should never be speaking to a man in that, uh, in that setting. A Gentile woman um, would never speak to a Jewish man, and a Jewish man would never allow a Gentile woman to speak to him. And see, she was Syrophoenician, Canaanite. Now, when the Jews rolled up on Cana, right, um, they said, hey, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. It's ours. Thanks for being here and keeping the seat warm for us, but we'd like it now, right? That did not happen. <laughs> the Canaanites fought, and they fought for their land, and the Jews displaced them and took that land over, and they began to intermarry with the Jews, and the Jews that intermarried with the Canaanites became known as the Syrophoenicians, and they were hated. They were known as half-breeds. They were uh, um, often um, known and called by racial slurs that I'll, uh, I'll explain in just a second. And this woman has a daughter that, uh, uh, that she doesn't know what to do with. An evil spirit has entered this daughter. And she is going crazy. And this woman knows and has heard about this man, Jesus, that can put things right. And she comes to Jesus and says, um, would, you, uh, would you heal my daughter? And she's just banging on about it, right? So much so that the disciples come and say, will you shut her up? Because she's just making a noise of it. I was, uh, uh, Anne Lamont is one of my favorite writers um, and she says, there really are places inside of you that you don't even know exist until you love a child. Isn't that true? Um, there's just places inside of you that you don't know exist until you love a child. Um, and so this woman brings um, um, this, this need uh, that she has to, to Jesus. And she says these words, Lord, Son of David, and the text is really plain about these, the, the way that this is. Lord is this kind of uh, big word that means Lord of all. Son of David is this particular word for the Jews that means uh, the, the Messiah, the one that's going to liberate the Jews. She uses both of them at the beginning of this. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is ill, sick. A demon has entered uh, this, this, my, my daughter and, um, and she's dying. It may be in today's world a son or daughter that's struggling with an addiction that we've lost. We bring them to a therapist and to say, would you help us? Right? Something has happened. Um, and, and we begin to see that Jesus is talking about the wideness of God's love in Jerusalem and in, where, uh, in his own zip code. He gets out of his zip code and this woman, who's not a part of the tribe of Israel, comes and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then begins to say, Lord. And the rest of the time, she says, Lord. Lord is this, this universal and basically what I think she's trying to do is to say, Son of David, what you're doing in Jerusalem, we need here. We need your mercy here. Jesus comes in conflict and in contact with his own set of, um, of, of cultural principles and says to this woman and calls her, <laughs> calls her a dog. <laughs> calls her a half-breed. Uses this, this racial slur. And said, I didn't come for the dogs. I came for the tribe of Israel. 
And she gets into it with Jesus. I love this woman because she begins to wrestle with Jesus and says, and, and says that even the dogs get scraps from the table. So Jews and uh, Gentiles treated dogs differently. The Gentiles would allow the dogs to come into their house and, uh, and eat from the table. I've got a very Gentile home. <laughs> the, Jew, the Jews uh, would keep the dogs out. And they would throw the scraps out the window or out the front door, and they would allow the dogs to eat out there. What she is saying is, um, I want to come inside. Will you let me inside the house of Israel? Will you let me inside where the food that you are feeding other people? And she's desperate. And Jesus says, I didn't come for that. And she says, even, even the dogs get scraps from the table. And she, she begins to wrestle with, with, with Jesus in this place. I, this is what I think. I'm just wondering. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm wondering. I grew up in a... Um, with a religious uh, understanding that Jesus had it all packed in and he was just walking around knowing everything. And so when he said, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, it was almost like, you know, um, see you in three days, you know. <laughs> right? That, that he had it down. This wasn't going to really be a, a big deal because he knew it was coming. You know, hold my beer, Yahweh, I'll be back, you know. It's the sense of what I, I was raised with. But if Jesus was fully human, and he was a part of his own culture, and he was talking about this radical love that wanted his own culture to be set free and be set free from the Roman Empire, and he moves beyond that culture, I wonder if this woman's coming and confronting the ways that he has developed culturally in his own understanding of religion and himself, and he begins to see the very spirit of the living God move the boundaries back. And Jesus has a metanoia and goes, oh, so that when we get to Acts, it's in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and where? To the uttermost parts of the world is where the love of God resides. And I believe that this woman, in, in many ways, confronts Jesus in his own limitations of his culture. And, and the very spirit of the living God moves the boundaries. Jesus sees where the boundaries are. Not within the, the, the neighborhood that he grew up in, but in the need of the world. That would need a love that he has and is connected to. And this woman has the odds stacked against her. And um, she needs an advocate. She needs somebody that's going to say to her, I see, I see um, what you need and I will be your advocate. Because at the end of the day, I don't think her courage um, is enough. Let me talk about this as we close. Going to the other side often means that we involve ourselves into this theology of descent. What, what Richard Rohr calls this necessary downward movement. We have been um, acculturated to think when I give my life to Jesus, it goes left to right and up. Right? Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I can't sing that anymore without like snot laughing, right? Um, because it's just not true. It's just not. I want it to be true. It just ain't true, folks, right? 
Every day with Jesus means that I'm going to um, be connected to a love that will not let me go, a type of joy and vulnerability that's possible there, and things that are out of control in my life. Now, I don't know how you sing that tune in just the way I said, you know, but that's the every day with Jesus stuff. But it also means that in the disorientation that there's a downward descent that Jesus takes us down as I said last week, that the gospel has to be bad news before it's good news. The gospel often is this, oh, I have to come to terms with who I am and what I'm capable of, and in that place receive a type of love, and my worlds come together in a way that integrates me so that I might live out of that place of love, out of that place of non-comparison, out of that place of no longer needing to stand on the mound of my life and my achievements. But to be able to be broken open often takes a downward descent. And I often see Jesus moving down to the deepest parts of our brokenness. And if you are unwilling to go there, you won't grow spiritually. You may crush it on Facebook. You may be the envy of everybody around you. And you may die thinking you have gotten away with it. But you haven't. The whole call of the gospel is will we descend and be broken open by love and be able to receive the very love of God in that place? And out of that place, take each other's hands, the hands around you. And as Ram Dass says, let's just walk each other home from that space. That's a mature spirituality. I don't care how much you know. The question might be, are you willing to be broken open? That's where the compassion and the love of Christ will always be found. All right, that's that's what I got. (laughs) Y'all have any any questions or comments or pushbacks or things that came up for you that you want to say? Anything you want to throw at me? Anything? All right. Well, let's take the hand of the person next to us. I want to say, yeah, stand up. Let's just do it. Yeah, let's stand. We might as well. Let's do it. I want you to. um, I want you to look around the room. Take a minute to look at each other. The spiritual life isn't about competition. It's about vulnerability. Coming to Jesus isn't about um, some kind of spiritual ginkoba that you're going to kind of like a supplement that's going to give you a little boost. It's It's an invitation to a different way of relating to each other. And some of the hands that we're holding, we need to relate differently to each other. For some of us in our own families, the way that we're relating to each other has run its course. And maybe you can suck it up and live another 20 years like that. You hadn't won. The Spirit may be saying, I want you to relate to each other differently, and I want you to relate to yourself differently. And we can start that here. We can do that, folks. 
It doesn't matter how big this class gets. It matters how deep we go. Let's go there with each other. Let's see what happens. Let's pray. Oh God, you are found on every side of the line that we draw in the universe. You show up in a woman that shouldn't be 50 feet from you. And it's her cry that shows you the boundaries of love go farther than even you, Jesus, experienced. And that's why um, we can say this morning, where can we go from your presence? Where can we flee from you? Your love is everywhere. May we experience that in the depth of our own experiences. May we experience that with each other, and may we extend that to a world in need today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.